In the last episode, I learned about the day remembrance with Dr. Brett Isaki, an assistant professor in practice at the University of Arizona. I also discussed his perspective on how the Japanese American community uses silence. I then traveled to Little Tokyo in downtown LA to visit Bunkudo, a legacy gift shop that has been open for over 75 years. I spoke to the manager of Bunkudo, Dane Ishibashi, about what makes Little Tokyo such a special place to so many people. Dane talked about the tight knit community of Little Tokyo and how community leaders step up to help one another in a time of need, and mentioned one particular organization, Little Tokyo Service Center. Founded in 1979 by Japanese activists, Little Tokyo Service Center is an organization that focuses on helping those in need and is one of the main organizations in Little Tokyo that's fighting off gentrification. I, I don't think it ever stopped, right? From redevelopment, you know, it's always been a struggle for Little Tokyo to survive and to maintain the legacy businesses. This is Kathy Masayoka who's been a board member of Little Tokyo Service Center for over 20 years and has been involved in the organization for over 40. Having, they had trouble during COVID, but Little Tokyo Service Center um, supported them by providing meals to some of the residents here and having the restaurants, you know, create those meals, provide those meals. So they, uh, they got funding so that the restaurants could be paid for the meal and then the residents could get a meal at a lower price. You know, so it's subsidized. So there was this whole circle or cycle of, uh, you know, restaurants getting benefit from this, but also the residents getting meals uh, during COVID. But, you know, this whole thing about Little Tokyo surviving, not only just the pandemic, but it's constantly under attack because it's right near the Civic Center, you know, the flower market, the jewelry market. Little Tokyo is here. It's like, and it's a very desirable location. I wanted to get a better understanding of what Little Tokyo Server Center does for the community. So I asked what their core beliefs are. Little Tokyo Service Center is really an important institution because of the values that it has. You know, it, the services that it does in terms of uh, you know, supporting the lower income, the Japanese American community at large, but also in addition, working with other communities and supporting them, especially when we talk about affordable housing, building housing for people that can't afford a lot of the market rate housing that's going on, and working with other communities to help them build affordable housing and supporting their organizations to continue the work in their communities, the Filipino community, the Thai community, the Korean American community, and the Chinatown community. And also, I should say, Boyle Heights, East LA Community Corporation, so the Latinx community, and South Central. So I think in terms of not just being self-centered or looking only at our community, but it's, it's a hub in terms of people looking to what Little Tokyo Service Center does and being that model. It seemed that LTSC not only valued working within the Little Tokyo community, but also the community outside Little Tokyo. I asked why intersectionality was so important to LTSC. That is a part of the, uh, our principles when we started Little Tokyo Service Center. Uh, that we treat everyone equally. This is Yasuko Sakamoto, a founding member of Little Tokyo Service Center and former director of social services. Accept each other, it's different. Support each other, 
Also, I think um, talk about the uh, not just the ethnicity, the people with the challenges, sexuality differences, seniors like that, as well as you know, children, the many more. They have a uh, different identities, so we should like embrace each other's differences. And that comes with the uh, compassion and the love. Little Tokyo is becoming more and more diverse. LTSC recognizes this by welcoming everyone with open arms and standing up for those whose voices have been silenced. I think this truly reflects how the values of the Asian American community have shifted over the years as we realize that the fight for equality includes everyone. I want to know more about the origins of LTSC. My sister Judy, she passed away, so she's no longer with us, but um, Judy Nishimoto Ota, she was with a group called Little Tokyo People's Rights Organization that was part of fighting redevelopment and trying to make sure that there's housing for, you know, the, the residents and some of the hotels, as well as a first generation Issei, as well as a community center, which we have today, the JACCC. And so a lot of those people continued to be involved in the community. She eventually became an attorney, a lawyer. So she volunteered at times with Little Tokyo Service Center in terms of cases. And when uh, a hotel was going to be torn down and the people were going to be evicted, she worked with the residents. And mostly single people, some families, many different ethnicities, a few Japanese American. She worked with that hotel, along with another attorney, Fred Nakamura, uh, to work with them to try to make sure that they got some benefits or, you know, if they wanted to fight the eviction, you know, whatever it was they wanted to do. So she continued from that, really, the whole change in LTS came about. Little Tokyo Service Center was focused on services, social services, that's what it was. But from that point on, I think there was a need looking at housing. And so Bill Watanabe went around looking in Little Tokyo for spaces for some of the people to live in, found the San Pedro Firm building, which was owned by the city and had rooms, but they were all boarded up. So the city was planning to tear that down and build something else or something for the city. That became a focal point. And we had a housing committee. Uh, Judy was part of that. I was part of that. Several people were part of that. That building was saved. A lot to do with, you know, Judy's leadership, Little Tokyo Service Center being involved. And the decision was made then to try to work on housing, to build affordable housing and to learn how to do that. So Little Tokyo Service Center was really the first API organization to get into affordable housing. And I think really Judy kind of pushed it. You know, she was, she was the kind of person that liked to take risks. And it was just a little scary because it was something very new and very um, different. But that's the direction that Little Tokyo Service Center took. And that led to renovating the San Pedro Firm building and with the kitchen and really much better, the Union Center for the Arts, and eventually Kasahewa, which became really a residence for many different ethnicities. In addition to fighting gentrification, LTSC has also helped young people discuss important topics such as the Asian American identity. Okay, so this goes back to the 70s, but and also it's partly talking about the camps. But you know, as a result of 
of World War II and the incarceration, you know, a lot of Japanese Americans didn't want to talk about, you know, the camps. Also, as Japanese Americans, I think there was a there's, there was a negative self-identity. You know, I didn't grow up being very proud, or even knowing what Japanese American meant until Asian American studies. You know, so most of us grew up really with a lot of self-hate. So in the early 1970s, there was a, a drug problem. And in one year, 1971, 31 young people overdosed. And that was, the, and so I returned to the community in 1971 and, and worked with young people that, that, you know, young people and their families. And one of the things that we tried to do was education in the community because people, again, didn't want to talk about the problem. When they said that the young person had died, and these are high school age, they said they had a heart attack, which is very odd for someone that, that young and that many people. So they didn't want to say what the real problem was. So part of what we had to do was just go to like, you know, we had different teachings at churches talking about why is it that young people are overdosing? What does it mean to have, what kind of identity do we have? And why aren't we talking about the problem? So we tried to do that in the 1970s and we started a group called Parents Group to be able to more counseling. We had mental health social work, we had social workers and some advisement from a woman named Amy Mass, who was a who was a therapist, and we used to get together weekly for several years just to talk. Yasuko also added about her experiences working with the older generation of Issei's and their struggles with breaking the silence as well. They they really didn't talk about the, their their experience. So until until um, National Coalition. Redress and reparation act uh, the uh, movement started. We didn't really hear a lot from uh, Isaids and Isaids, but this movement gave an uh, opportunity for them to uh, they feel it's okay to talk about. I found it interesting that LTSU worked with the National Coalition for Redress and Reparations. And I asked them to elaborate on the relationship between the two communities. This is a part that Little Tokyo Service Center, Yasuko, and, and, you know, we came together. We were both working at Little Tokyo Service Center in 1981. And the group that Yasuko was talking about is the National Coalition for Redress and Reparation. And this group would meet at Little Tokyo Service Center in the big room uh, once a month. So Little Tokyo Service Center supported this effort, you know, helped to really give, give uh, space for organizing. And Yasuko and myself and Evelyn and, you know, we're all involved with this reparations and uh, the hearings in 1981. And so Yasuko really talked a lot with the Issei. She translated at the hearings. Actually, I was, uh, the program that I was working with was transportation and translation services. So I used the van to drive the Issei to the hearings. So there was a lot of, <laughs> lot of effort from Little Tokyo Service Center in, in supporting the hearings. But Yasuko was right. They didn't really want to testify. It was very, very hard at first. You know, we, ins- we wanted people to testify, but they hadn't spoken you know, in, in 40 years. It was very hard, but once, it, like just a, almost like a few weeks, a week or so before the hearings, more people started to volunteer to speak. Yasuko added that the NCRR meetings were also an opportunity to bridge the gap between the older and the younger generations of Japanese Americans. 
But what I saw, and then I thought it was so amazing, until the uh, uh, NCRR movement started, younger generation and then Issei generation, even among Nisei, they were kind of separated. They didn't really communicate. They didn't talk about the camp experience. And the Sansei generation seemed that they didn't know. But through the uh, NCRR movement, because the Issei generation started saying, you know, young people who didn't even go to a camp, they were working for this, you know, NCRR, I mean, uh, compensation, the movement. And why don't I, or why don't we go to tuition program and then hear what they're going to say? So that's somehow uh, create the positive feelings towards the younger generation. After that, that I really felt it, that this NCR movement that it became the bridge, filled the gap between the younger generation and first and then second generation. This reminded me of the phenomenon that Dr. Saki discussed in the last episode about the first generation Issei's being more willing to talk to the third generation Sansei's about their experiences in the incarceration camps rather than their second generation Misei children. Yasuko discussing the Sansei's push for redress and reparations made me realize that the Issei's may have been more open about their experiences with the Sansei's since the Sansei's were willing to speak up and fight for them. Overall, the hearings for the redress and reparations seemed to be healing for both generations, as Issei's were able to talk about their painful past, and the Sansei's were able to learn more about their family histories and struggles. Now that I know more about LTSC, and how the organizations involved within and outside the Little Tokyo community, I want to know more about Kathy's and Yasuko's personal experiences and how they struggled with their Asian American identities. My family was uh, in camp. My mother's family was at Gila in Arizona. And uh, my, they were from Santa Maria. They were from a farming area. And my father's family was from Boyle Heights, LA, Los Angeles, and they were, ended up at Manzanar. My father was Kibe. A term to describe someone with Issei's parents who's born in America, but go back to Japan to complete their education. And I think, strangely, I think so we had a little more of a, a connection, I guess, or sympathy or something in terms of people from Japan or more Japanese orientation. But Kathy still struggled with finding a sense of belonging. I went to Japan, you know, because I thought there was no place in this country for me. Even, even though I was born here. I tried for the whole year that I was there to become Japanese. Very, very, very hard. Impossible, of course. You know, and so then I came back, and then I had another culture shock. When I came back to the United States, and I was surrounded by non-Japanese, because it was all Japanese, on top of the fact that I felt, if, if there's no place for me in America, and there's no place for me in Japan, where is there a place? I asked Kathy how she dealt with this feeling of isolation. When I went back to, to um, you know, UC Berkeley in 1969, 
Fortunately, Asian American studies, they had, the whole movement for Asian American studies had started. So that was actually saving me. I mean, to be honest, really, I really was kind of lost. Yasugo also experienced a culture shock, like Kathy did, but in a different way. She immigrated to the U.S. in 1976 at the age of 26, making her Shin Issei, a term used to describe first-generation Japanese Americans that immigrated after World War II. Did I have a cultural shock? <laughs> yes, I did. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, linguistically wise, cultural wise, um, so different. But um, what really helped me was a uh, getting to know, like um, uh, Kathy, Kathy's circle, getting to know Judy Nishimoto. Oh who are trying to help Japanese newcomers who were, who were working in uh, Little Tokyo around that time. And so gradually, I adapted the uh, new culture, or Nikkei culture, not the American culture, you know, Hakujin uh, culture. So uh, little by little, I was able to adapt it. And then I lived in Tokyo, so I had a many opportunity to meet with different people, I mean, from all over the world, so that's uh, another thing. And uh, identity-wise, uh, I may have an uh, uh, identity issue now. When I came, it was, uh, I'm Japanese. And it was so distinct that I'm Japanese. The, there were the clear differences between a Japanese Americans and myself. But now that the uh, gap is getting like narrower, I'm not the complete Japanese, or I'm not the complete uh, Japanese American. More towards the Japanese American, but I'm not the totally American either. So when I go back to Japan, they don't look at me as a Japanese anymore. As Yasuko had a unique background, I wanted to know more about her experiences when joining LTSC and why she wanted to become more involved within the Japanese American community. I think um, knowing um, Evelyn, Evelyn and Bill, they were pretty accepting. Bill and Evelyn are also founding members of Little Tokyo Service Center. The uh, new immigrant from Japan, um, but the uh, first generation of Japanese Americans that we call Issei Jinnir, Issei Pioneer, they were pretty critical uh, towards newcomers from Japan. They didn't really like, like me. I don't think they liked me uh, in the beginning. And so uh, the good thing I was a case manager, so I had a little title and something uh, I do something good for them. So through the services, I started learning a lot about the, uh, of course, Japanese American history, um, also uh, how they lived, also uh, why they were uh, upset uh, there was a, uh, you know, at the uh, uh, newcomers. Uh, they felt, some of them felt with the dirty shoes, we just get, uh, get into their house, you know, with a dirty shoe. 
That was the time Japanese economy was so high, and it's like um, they are taking over all the uh, small businesses. Uh, actually, they one one of Japanese companies that they bought the Bonaventure Hotel. It was a, such a peak. So, so I don't think they were really directing at me, but the, I represent the uh, Japan. So. That's a, uh, another, um, I think, a reason I could think. But once we started talking about it, once I started doing the uh, translation, once I started the, uh, talking to them at the uh, uh, luncheon program about a possible hearing or you know, something like that. So through the activities, I think they finally accepted. Lastly, I asked if they had any advice for young Asian Americans who are struggling with their identity. I, I think that's a kind of a, everybody feels that, huh? Mm -hmm. You have to find your place. Um, you know, I, I think, you, you have to, maybe it may not be in your community. Maybe it may be another community where you have to find that kind of place. And then from there you, you know, create, find other people like, you know, that can create spaces within your own community. I mean, I also thought there was no place in the community for, for me. I always, a lot of us felt like we were different, mm -hmm. like we didn't quite fit in. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of a lot of, but then we came together and we said, no, there's a lot that brings us together. And that was really a good feeling when um, coming back to the community and, and finding people that felt similarly. But it was a different time. You know, the war had been going on, the anti-war movement. We were kind of coming together around different beliefs and, um, and experiences. You know, people had gone to Vietnam, came back. People had gone to colleges, came back. We saw a lot of movement going on. So we came back with that kind of similarity. and. And we, that's how I think we came together. After speaking with Yasuko and Kathy, as well as learning about the LTSC's role within the Little Tokyo community, I realized that although finding your identity is a very personal journey, it is a journey that you can't complete by yourself. By reaching out to people with similar morals and beliefs as you, as well as lending a helping hand to those in need, you can truly learn more about yourself and grow as a person. I thought about this in terms of my own experience, as I often isolate myself from the Asian American community. I find myself thinking about the past experience I've had in the community, where I've been told that I wasn't Asian enough, or my skin was too dark. But after meeting with LTSC, I realized that although I may feel lonely right now, there's always a community that's willing to accept me for who I am. And maybe I can find that community by helping others feel a little bit less lonely too, by reaching out a helping hand. My name is Tin Subson, and this is Chasing Cherry Blossoms. <laughs>